This is Cinema Degeneration. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing. Just some things you gotta do. We all go a little mad sometimes. You wanna know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? You just can't let them go? Go! Hi, I'm Jackie. Wanna play? <laughs> Please, God. This is God. The dead will walk here. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Your suffering will be legendary even in hell. Get me back my It's alive, it's alive, it's alive. They all Coming to get you, Barbara. Boy, you're I've got a message for you. This is the shape of fear. You're not going to like it. This is the color of hell. What is it? And this is the power of the Prince of Darkness. From John Carpenter, director of Howl. A vision of the most powerful evil of all. Prince of Darkness. Where are you? Rated R. Starts Friday at theaters everywhere. All righty, folks. Welcome once again to Cinema Degeneration's John Carpenter Appreciation Month. Uh, tonight we got something pretty special for you. We are doing the nineteen. <clears throat> we are doing the nineteen eighty-seven Prince of Darkness. Written and directed by John Carpenter. And my co-host and good friend, Scott Tepperman, is joining us this evening. How are we doing? Hello, hello. It's awesome to be back. Good stuff. Yeah, I'm going to say I haven't had you on for a couple of months. It's been a while since we recorded, but I know you've been super busy with uh, Cruel stum- Summer stuff. Yeah, that's going to be a blast. Or I don't know if this is airing after we... <laughs> Yeah, this will yeah this will definitely air after afterwards. It'll probably be actually a few days after we uh, we we finish up. Cool. Well, I'll say it, it was a blast. <laughs> awesome, good stuff. It it will be a blast, and it was a blast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I got it all set up where my lovely wife Patty is going to be uh, putting up a couple of the episodes that I've already edited. She's going to. Uh, put them up live as we're recording. So, you know, if I can get this edited in time, you know, it might go up while we're recording. So um, if it does, Hey, it's great seeing you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The last time we recorded was for our last uh, appreciation month was, was George Romero and we did creep show too, but this time is all about the Prince of darkness and we'll get right off into it. I'll start off with a little quick IMDB synopsis, which is as follows. A group of graduate students and scientists uncover an ancient canister in an abandoned church. But when they open the container, they inadvertently unleash a strange liquid and an evil force on all humanity. And that's a fairly good representation. I feel like half the time these little synopsises are kind of halfway spot on, but that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. And uh, the first thing I had to notice, like in the credits, how it says... uh, uh, Written by John Carpenter, but in the credits is actually Martin Quartermass, <laughs> which uh, is his alias, you know. But uh, Carpenter used quite a few aliases when he was writing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Now, we've discussed this off air, uh, but for those of uh, you listening at home, uh, this is your uh, favorite Carpenter movie, am I correct? Yeah, um, I was actually talking to my wife the other night. She was surprised when um, when I, I mean, she knows I think that with Prime Prince of Darkness, I just love this movie, but um, the obvious go-to for John Carpenter when you think his name, people just usually go to Halloween. And um, Halloween the badass movie i mean it's great obviously it's a huge genre defining or, or redefining film but for me that sits firmly in fourth place for my favorite carpenter film um and she's like i can't believe that i said well it's a testament <laughs> to him because he does so many good films that um i mean you you really his his, his filmography reads us reads off like a string of greatest hits it's insane. It's not even like cherry picking. It's like everything is either a, a cult classic or a, or a or a hit or a classic in the making or a cult classic in the making. Like he's just insane. And um, yeah, he's far, had several I mean, really good runs. You know, yeah, yeah. Certain directors have one good run, make a couple of good films, and then they're gone. He's had several really good runs of films. I think he has. And and my favorite director is Cronenberg um, because basically. His 70s and 80s output has just solidified him as pretty much untouchable for me. Um, but he kind of, you know, and some people will debate this, but I think he kind of fell off uh, in the 90s and even 2000s, which totally switched gears. Maybe the existence or whatever that is, other than that, which is kind of pretty much a 90s reboot of Videodrome, um, his film quality to me, the whole, uh, and he also said he really didn't really want to explore horror too much more but um you know he's it's still enough for him to be my favorite director and john carpenter to be a, a second for me but um john carpenter in general his body of work is just completely uh there, there's no drop off maybe the only i would pretty much say the only weak spot maybe just because i didn't think it was original was the ward uh, other than that everything he's done has been pretty much brilliant um and that's really insane. I mean, the guy has longevity. The guy has simplicity. Um, and, you know, it's like having a restaurant, opening a restaurant. Why have a page with, why have a 15-page menu with, you know, seafood and chicken and uh, Indian food and Asian food and Italian food? Why not just have five, six, or seven items and just kick ass with those items? And John Carpenter, I mean, he puts out a lot of films, but he doesn't really stray too far from his formula. He uses the same crew and cast a lot of times. He uses a similar story line to certain things, or at least certain setups. A lot of the shots he does are the same thing. The music is pretty much done by him. Um, and it works. I mean, if it's not broken, don't fix it. And he knows that. And he just keeps, still somewhat evolves, but still keeps just enough ingredients and elements that people have loved over the years with him. And he just keeps that going. And I think people appreciate that. I know I do. I know you do as well. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. But I got to ask, before I forget, like you said this, uh, that Halloween ranks fourth in your favors. What are one, two, and three? Well, I, mean, uh, I guess I already know what one is. One is Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness, <laughs> and, and, you know, far down. I mean, it's a big jump. <laughs> Prince of Darkness is way out there. But um, two is Fog, and three is Christine. And four is Halloween. I just, I think Halloween is great, but I just... I, I just love those uh, other films just a bit more. Yeah. Oh, those good choices. All good choices. And really, for the most part, other than one or two misses, there are no really like horrible 
John Carpenter films. You know, like the only two that I can think of that really strike me as ones that I I don't like <clears throat> is uh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man and Village of the Damned. Those are the only two that like, and still they're like passable. They're not like absolutely yeah, horrible, those, but those it's the are same. a bad a, a a a bad or a fair John Carpenter is still much better than most other crap out there and that's just the the, the way oh, it is oh yeah and and i'm actually you know i have a youtube channel that i'm trying to put more content on i've just been so busy with stuff um but i'm i have in the in the works a uh doing a retrospective on ghosts of mars um i absolutely love that film and i think it's highly underappreciated um i think it's held up great it's his nastiest most brutal movie and uh that ranks actually pretty high for me as well. That might be right behind Halloween for me, and I know that's sacrilege because everyone loves the thing and in the mouth of madness. But uh, I didn't; those didn't connect to me like uh, Ghost of Mars. I, I love the Ghost the Ghost of Mars movie, so I'll be doing something on that. But that's another one that was over, kind of over overlooked and underappreciated type of film. Well, you know, I feel like the the latter half of his career, you know, like. Uh vampires mm-hmm. yeah, was, you know that was another one that we we just covered and just rele- released that uh live today you know a, a decent movie and i i like ghost of mars too i i didn't understand the hate for it you know when i saw it, i was just like people must have seen a different still, movie that yeah people are still talking about how bad that is and it's like really get over it it's 20 years old <laughs> yeah right <laughs> but we're here tonight to talk about prince of darkness and I love how the opening is it's just the silent kind of shots of that priest clutching that little case, breathing his last breath. You don't really know at the, at the moment that he's breathing his last breath, but having seen this so many times, a couple dozen times, you know, as he breathes his last breath is very haunting when you think about it. Because he is he's taking a secret to his grave and the secret could uh, could and does um, kind of bring about the, the end of the world. And like right from there, it goes right to the kids in college. <laughs> it's just dead priest, kids in college. <laughs> exactly, um, well, and not and, so much but, kids because all these people are in their thirties or forties. They're they're not they're not college kids. My wife mentioned that earlier. She's like, these people don't look clearly don't look anywhere near what age they should be. And I said again, that's a that's a uh, that's a big um, characteristic of films from the seventies or mostly the eighties, but. 70s and 80s casting high school kids or college kids you know two decades older than they actually really are i mean that they are actually in real life more than what they're supposed to be playing it's got to be tough being a 38 year old freshman exactly exactly but uh you know I, you know, I don't understand a lot of the, the the quantum mechanics, the microbiology, and the different things. You know, the doctors and the scientists they have. A lot of it is a lot of scientific mumbo jumbo that I don't understand. But I am highly interested in it. You know, I, I, it doesn't. You know, uh, it's not a detriment to the film. It's not, you know, it doesn't take away from my enjoyment of the film. But I do feel like a lot of it goes right over my head. No matter no matter how many times I've watched this movie, I'm like, I don't understand half of what they're talking about. I understand, like, the stuff about carbon dating and, you know, when they say that the, the glass cylinder goes back to 7 million years. I'm like, okay, I get that part, but everything else, way over my head. That's why... <laughs> We have trained physicists that have degrees and shit because that that that's their job. My job exactly. is just to to watch and love horror movies. Exactly, and and I think the um, 
the John Carpenter is so skillful as a uh, not only as a director but as a writer that he can. I mean, I, I'm I'm sure if someone were to sit down and pick this film apart, which they do again, most of it's becoming a cult classic now. Obviously, uh, Prince of Darkness, but it's it's not pretty much regarded as his best work. Uh, pretty much universally, it's not. Um, unfortunately, everything I like seems to be like that. It's annoying already. But um, if someone were to <laughs> sit down and pick it apart, you could probably pick holes in it as big as football fields in the in the plot and in the logic, but. Carpenter has a way to say just enough things a certain way and then throw something else in or throw some music, which pretty much permeates the, the entire film from beginning to end. There's a sense of, you know, um, uh, that just, you know, through the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a constant with a lot of his films. You know, and I, I don't know if anyone else really does that as much or could handle that as well. But as a result, I mean, especially seeing, um, Prince of Darkness, um, if you see it at least more than once, you, you already know what to expect. So you definitely, like you said, you like to watch things, um, to pick up things. We were talking earlier, like to pick up things, even if you've seen a movie thousand times. Um, it just seems to, not that I'm picking up more with this movie now. I think I, I got to the point where I was picking up as much as I was. I did definitely pick up things through repeated viewings, but I think I'm there now. I don't think I'm really picking up anything else. But it does start gelling more now. It does start flowing more. And, you know, in, in Carpenter world, uh, and this is a compliment. I don't want it to sound like it's not. But in Carpenter world, everything makes 100% sense. <laughs> right now, everything makes yeah. 100% sense in that movie because it, it just does. And, and you know, the, the thing that, um, I mean, I guess we'll get into it. But the thing that really drives me with uh, Into Darkness is the fact that, you know, nowadays there's nothing wrong with horror films. Nowadays, you know, they 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 pretty much remake everything. But um, even right. the fresh horror films, everything needs to be immediate. Um, uh, and is that good and bad? There, there's both to that. You know, you you get kills right away, but that doesn't allow for any kind of tension to build. It doesn't really allow for much character development to happen. You need a kill right away. You need blood right away. You need boobs right away. You just you need all that. Back then. These films built, and if you look at Prince of Darkness, if you really watch it, not a hell of a lot happens through maybe half the film, but it's so, there's so much tension mounting, you can actually feel it through the screen, and it's it's a slow build, and it's a slow development of characters, and it's a slow, um, just the whole unfolding of the events, and I think to me, that's just so much more effective with connecting to an audience and building a world around them to engulf your, your audience and your viewer that just a lot of new films don't seem to be able to be afforded the opportunity to do that. Because even when Jim and I write a script and, you know, Jim is you know older than I am and I'm, you know, 40, 47 now, but he's in his fifties now. So he's coming from the old school as I am, but even he's got the, the foresight when we're writing a script I'll send him the first draft. He'll look at it. This is like, he'll look at it and say, this is great, but you need a kill. You don't have a kill until 30 pages into the script, whatever script it is. And he's not wrong with that. You need something in there. You need something in there. So he's aware of what we need for the new stuff to make it happen. And you just have to go along with it and make it, you know, address the audience that you're working with. Unfortunately, you know, with everything at people's fingertips nowadays, you really don't have to leave your house for anything. You can, 
order food, order clothes, order <laughs> medicine, <laughs> uh, anything. You don't have to leave the home. You entertain me. You don't have to leave. So everybody wants everything now. They want it yesterday. That's what they want. They don't want to wait for it. So when yeah, you watch, it's all about the uh, instant gratification. These yeah, days. it's all the de- deliberately paced movies and and slower. I don't want to even say slower, but more deliberately paced films from the seventies and eighties look boring a lot of times. Even my, and my wife is, you know, she's she's close to my age and she's even bored. She's like, this is boring. Nothing's happening. Let's get moving. It's like, what are you expecting? Like, this is how it was. And you grew up like this. I don't know why. There's that so that, that that longing for something to happen immediately, but it's just filmmaking styles that are different now. Well, it's a slow burn. That's it's easily put. It's just a That's slow burn, it. but it builds tension. It builds the story until you realize the magnitude of what they're dealing with. Because at first, I mean, like through the first 30, 45 minutes of the film, because it's about about an hour, 45 minutes long, give or take, yes, you know, uh, you know, nobody even involved in the story, the characters, really know what's going on besides uh, Donald Pleasance's uh, priest uh, character and uh, uh, Victor Wong as the professor. You know, they kind of have an inkling of what's going on, but all our other characters, all our doctors, all our physicists, you know, and the, the students, they don't know what's going on. And then when they do find out the magnitude of it, I mean, most of them freak the fuck out as most normal people would. But it, it's such a slow burn. You get to know these characters. You get to know what they're about other than just being doctors and students and physicists and shit. You know, they, you get to know them that way when, in my opinion, when they're taken from us, because this is a horror movie and we're, you know, going spoilers here. You know, good chunk of the cast bites it they all like a good amount of them die you know so when you lose them it's i think it's more impactful you get to know them a little bit i i, I think i will agree and disagree a little bit here if i can and you and i always on the same page with stuff but the thing that yeah, I yeah usually yeah is that i i think um uh i actually think the characters are somewhat underdeveloped all of them in this film um and i think they all have their one like you got the crazy Asian guy that cracks the jokes. You got the the very uptight woman that is an Asian or she's not an Asian. You know he cracked things about her. You have the uptight the uptight scientist. You have the two the new fresh uh, lovers. You have whatever, but they it it doesn't really delve much more into them. Um, now they're likable, and I think that um, is what you were alluding to as well. When yes. they're actually when people actually get offed or get injured or get killed or get uh, put in situations of of peril then yes you care for them but you just you like them i don't really think you're really emotionally vested in them because he actually played it fairly um i think fairly narrow with this but i i think for the for the film he wisely again carpenter is a master of filling in the 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 plot and the gap hole uh, the gaps and the plot holes um i think he wisely understood that the story could possibly be very convoluted if he threw much more in there <laughs> so he's probably like let me focus on the story and just do the science and faith and that kind of thing and i'll put people that have either been familiar in other films or um or familiar tv faces or people that are just likable and enjoyable to look at um right. rather than getting into their backstory because that'll only muddy the the waters a little bit more because the story admittedly is going to take a little bit of um thinking and, and analyzing anyway by the viewer <laughs> right. um 
But well, as like a result, the story is like not convoluted. You know, I, I'm I'm not sure what word I'm ran, looking for. It ran the risk of being like that, but no, I don't think it was. I think it could have been. But again, I think they handled it overall pretty simply and just threw a bunch of like you were saying, like mumbo jumbo in there. Um, right, it works. I mean, I, I wasn't lost at all watching the movie. The first time I think I ever saw it, but I was probably I must have been 14 or 15 years old. So, but the first time that I saw it. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. Excuse me. Oops, sorry. <laughs> if we could do that, but I didn't know. What uh, you was... can say whatever you like here. <laughs> okay. But I didn't know what was going on. And then the second time I saw it, which I think was pretty much, it probably was the same weekend. I popped it in and just to digest what I watched, and um, and then I picked it up. And I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. But the first time was a little was a little bit confusing for me. Again, I was younger and I never knew what to expect. And after I saw it one time, I still viewed it. As in my, you know, back to back almost, but then I kind of knew what I was getting into because I just watched it and it made right. more sense. Well, and I think, you know, it's uh, especially, you know, you said you were 14, 15 when you've seen it. I think I was 11 or 12. I'm right. sure a lot of this, uh, it's more of a cerebral kind of horror movie. It's not a mindless hack and slash, you know, so a, a little bit of that, you know, went over our heads, but now that we're much older gentlemen, I, I think we, we get it. It's a, it, to me, it's a per, almost perfect mixture of science and religion trying to explain that artifact, you know, that, that, well, you know, when Donald Pleasance is the priest, you know, uh, goes to visit the, the church where they, you know, uh, with the priest that dies at the beginning, not Donald Pleasant's character, but the other priest, which I forgot the character's name. We'll just call him the priest. And, uh, you know, when he passes away, he's got that key that, you know, when he, he finds that cylinder, which what a great prop. I really would love to know more about, like, I'd have to listen to, I have the DVD, of course, but uh, I had to listen to the commentary track. To, I'd love to know more about that prop and how they, you know, made it and i would love also love to know where it is these days like i i, I always say i want to know where props like that disappear to i'm sure they were I, probably I, destroyed I, or, or something. yeah exactly like where yeah. are they today but anyway <laughs> let's face it this this you know cylinder filled with this green swirling liquid that is you know as they say you know in the film carbon dated back to seven million years ago so it's a uh, very ancient to say the least uh, has you know the son of Satan, you know, or the the anti god as they like to refer to him. Yeah, and I think you know once everybody you know when they you know when the priest uh, Donald Pleasance and the professor Victor Wong bring everybody there when they bring you know Dennis Dunn's character Walter and Lisa Blount as Catherine and and Jameson Parker, Mister Simon and Simon himself, yeah. Brian Brian Marsh. <laughs> As I really feel like Jameson Parker is kind of a lame duck in this movie. I mean, not so much a lame duck. That might be a little bit harsh. But I feel like as, you know, our potential, you know, our... Right, I was going to say, as the leading guy, he didn't have much charisma on the screen, which is weird because um, I wasn't a big fan of Simon and Simon, but he obviously had that very much on the show. Um, yeah. And so, But I think he just played to what was written for him. I, I do think... You know, what was interesting with this film, too, and it was I think it was a big uh, a big risk for Carpenter, too, because he came off. He just came off Big Trouble in Little China, which was this loud, bombastic, um, wild fantasy action comedy, whatever. Right. A movie <laughs> um, that couldn't be any more different than this right, film. Right. Exactly. And then, you know, he, he had Halloween and he had Bog and he had Christy, all these films that were 
essentially glorified slashers, at least the fog and Christine. I mean, if you watch both of them, those are glorified slashers. Um, oh yes, of course. To an extent to a body, you know, body count films. Um, this was a very low key, minimalistic. Um, there weren't many, um, not many crazy effects in this one. Really, very little blood in it, um, and whatever was in it was effective. Um, and other other than green stuff going all over the place and you know shooting all over the place, there really wasn't. There were a couple of quick shots, and you'll know what I'm talking about in case people haven't seen stuff. But one guy outside. And there's some cool little props happening, but, um, you know, effects happening. But other than that, he, he played it basically. I think this, in my opinion, this was the first film he did that. And I don't want to cheapen his work by saying this, but it's it's almost the first film, I think, up to that point that was not gimmick driven. It didn't have a killer car. It didn't have killer fog with ghosts. It didn't have um, over the top storyline and everything. Else. It was a straightforward horror movie. And I, I think, to be honest, too, um, I don't get scared of anything. I just don't. But I would actually consider Prince of Darkness. It's it's a scary movie. I think it's a, it's a scary and effective movie. It doesn't scare me. Again, I just think it happens to work with what it's trying to do. And that's, again, a testament to him as a filmmaker because he, he really dialed back everything else on that um, to just tell a straightforward story. And I, I think it, it works. I think it, it works. It's claustrophobic because it's, it's all in his one church, the entire film. Um, I, I just, the thing I really liked was talking about minimalistic, uh, Donald Pleasance, he first comes in and he's, he's babbling all this stuff and, you know, in, in, very, um, uh, energetically and everything else. It's Dr. Loomis. He's playing Dr. Loomis. Um, oh yes. It's very interesting though, is as the film progresses and he sees that people are succumbing to what he was fearing was coming, um, there's a scene in the film where he's kind of hiding behind a wall from the two characters that are trying to, um, uh, I guess, summon the Satan through this uh, mirror, this giant wall mirror. Right. And yeah. He's like hiding behind a big, he's like, hiding behind, or and he's praying and he's, he's very, you can barely hear him. He's like, tr uh, like, tr like kind of trailing off. And he almost looks like he almost sounds like he's sleepwalking. But if you listen to him, his voice is trembling. His is he's actually tearing up. That is an insanely good performance from him that I don't think gets the credit that it should. It was just this one moment, but it was uh, very powerful. And I don't think anyone else could have handled it like like doc like Doctor like Doctor oh. Loomis like like uh, Donald Pleasance. It was insane. It was really good. Well, Donald Pleasance was a master. He was, you know, a, a living legend at the time, and and he lends a certain air of credibility and regalness in everything he does. Yeah. You know, and uh, yeah, and he's essentially playing, you know, an extension of Loomis in this movie. You yeah. know, he, he's totally just Loomis. But I think again, he could have played. He could have played that one-dimensional. You know, this came out where um, he had done Halloween two, I guess. What, six years before Prince of Darkness and then the year after Prince of Darkness Halloween 4 came out when they brought Michael Myers back so he was still right in the thick of Dr. Loomis and it was a Carpenter film and um, right when it's, again right when it starts he's staggering in babbling stuff all crazy and inco incoherently and it, it is Loomis and you almost expect that and then he just dials it back and with dialing it back the way he does is, is pure um, uh, professional insanely good acting and like i said i, I think even those the, the, maybe that f 
five minute scene where it keeps cutting back from whatever going on and into the mirror and into him and then whatever's going on and into those guys, the mirror and into him. That's in my opinion, one of his, probably one of his finest performances in a horror film. And it just, that small moment, he was just phenomenal in it. As far as far as performances go, this gotta be a top five or top three for Donald Pleasance. I I would say. And Victor Wong as well, you know, I mean, like, again, you know, playing a a completely different kind of character, you know, less than one year later, you know what I mean? I mean, from Big Trouble Little China couldn't be his professor character couldn't be any more far removed from Egg Shen. Right. And and again, he played it. He played it totally straight and he was really um, effective and and low key. Again, it was an understated performance. Um, I think everybody did. I think. it, it, that's just wisely everybody didn't want to over nobody wanted to over the power of the film with personalities with character and with um effects and i know that sounds boring or it sounds whatever but this story and the atmosphere drove this one for me completely well really the only character who didn't dial it back at all who, who was maybe a slight bit over the top was dennis dunn his yeah. walter character but you know every movie has to have some sort um, of comic relief but it didn't feel out of place he didn't feel completely over the top but you know, like uh, he was there were one or two lines that i probably would have cut um but overall yeah yeah was, yeah maybe one or two but I love the claustrophobicness. You you've talked yeah. about the the claustrophobic nature of this. You know, they're all in one place. It has a very, um, at least uh, from a standpoint, from the horror standpoint, a very Night of the Living Dead kind of feel. Once you know, there's like kind of the homeless army where Alice Cooper, you know, the great Alice Cooper, the shock rocker, plays the the leader of the the homeless people who never really ever say anything except for the one homeless bag lady that talks to uh, Donald Pleasance, you know, uh, they're almost like the undead army in Night of the Living Dead, you know, that's besieged upon this place, keeping them inside, you know. Well, that's what I I felt very, I felt um, shades of uh, Assault on Precinct 13 with this one a lot. Um, And I don't know, it was almost like going to reverse Assault on Precinct 13 because they they weren't going anywhere. (laughs) They were just standing there. Right, um, right. It just had that sense of doom that was outside and, um, I don't know. I, I, I get Night of the Living Dead. I do. Um, but I think it, a lot of Assault on Precinct 13 uh, moments for me um, popped up in this one as well, which is, again, another brilliant Carpenter film. And I've heard people describe this as 50% Assault on Precinct 13 and like 50% oh. The Thing, which nice. I can definitely kind of see it. I don't know if I completely agree with that, but it, it, it does kind of feel that way in a, a little bit. Yeah. And Alice Cooper, you know, he gives such a great performance, but he, he never has to say a word. And again, I know we're, we're, the way we've been talking about it, it sounds like we're playing this movie really low key. And it's not a detriment to the film at all, because, you know, so, you would think, you know, he's the shock rocker. He's known for being flamboyant. He doesn't have to be in this. He doesn't have to do anything but stare. You know, no, when he uh, and I found it it's a very small part, but he, he, he was effective enough that he basically graces. um film posters and video covers of this film and everything. I mean, he just, he was really good in it. It just, he had that look, he had that, that yeah. he set that mood. And you know, I don't know if you know uh, about this little bit of trivia. He almost, he appeared in this movie almost purely by accident. His uh, 
manager at the time was producing the film and he had contacted John Carpenter. I read this somewhere. Don't recall where, but he contacted Carpenter's like, Hey, I, 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 you know, I heard about this movie you're making Prince of Darkness. I want to see some of the effects. I want to see how, how this is shot, you know, cause Cooper is a huge horror fan and he's Carpenter invited him to come to set. And this eventually ended up casting him as the, the well, lead uh, street schizo as they call them. That, that's cool. The two things that I know with the film, which were Easter eggs just over the years, I, I knew this, but, um, Apparently the um that bike impalement scene that was a prop that Ellis Cooper actually had on his stage for concerts. <laughs> I read that <laughs> somewhere too. That's I did not cool. know and that in here until recently. And then also I knew he was going to do the soundtrack um or at least a song. And apparently when the character is listening to music um or there's music in the background or something, uh that's his song. It's just very low, you know, very muted and very background-ish but it's his prince of darkness song yeah 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 when etchison the character etchison gets killed and he impales him with the bike which is probably like other than the makeup with uh kelly's character when she absorbs all the liquid from the the all that green swirling liquid which is like i love how it that evolves not to get away from the bike scene but like i love the way that makeup evolves we'll get into that much later but uh the impalement scene with etchison is really like the one real bloodiest scene is the one time you really see some blood gushing. And that wasn't bad either, but yeah, exactly. But when, oh gosh, what's the character, uh, Wyndham or Frank Wyndham, when he gets stabbed to death by the bag lady, that's, you know, it's, it's a horrifying scene, you know, and, and it, he dies so horribly, but it's not overtly bloody, you know, it's, it's left a lot in the shadows and, you know, there's, when I see certain movies, you know, like, for instance, you know, a series I know that you love more than anything is Saw. You know, when I watch a Saw movie, I want to see blood. I want to see gore. Right, You exactly. know, sometimes with a movie like this, the suspense sells it more than a blood and a gore would, if that makes sense. You know, I feel like it, uh, you know, certain movies, you know, you want, you want to see something like Big Trouble in Little China. You want to see something over the tr- top. <laughs> you know, you want to see something ridiculous. With this, it's just a totally different ball game. And I think it's, you know, because when you think of the magnitude of it, it's an overwhelming sense of dread that this container is contains a liquid that is essentially the imprisoned son of the anti-god. Exactly. exactly. I mean, if, if that doesn't, set, you know, make the hair on the, the back of your neck stand up, then you might want to check your pulse because you might already be dead. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it, um, it, I'll never forget, uh, I think it was... I don't know if it was, I, I just remember that it was years ago. I think it was Siskel or Ebert. And they said something like Prince of Darkness uh, had the ingredients f- to make a much better movie, which was interesting. Um, and, and a lot of times I hear things from people about that movie. Any negative stuff is always like the movie seems half baked or half finished or not quite, it doesn't quite gel or whatever else. And I, I don't understand you know i i'm assuming this is from a first time viewer because I, like i said once you watch it more than one time you don't really have to analyze it that much it's not really open for much i mean a little interpretation with that those weird video creepy video things coming through but the, the film is pretty straightforward um and i don't know you're either going to like it or you're not going to like it there's really not much to say about it not being complete or feeling empty or feeling whatever it's just not yeah, I don't buy that at all. I don't no, buy that, that, that at all. No, 
because also it's it's a part of the you know it's part of that apocalypse trilogy that mm-hmm. uh, Carpenter did, and that includes um I think the thing and in the mouth of madness, um and then Prince of Darkness is right in the middle of there, and the main underlying thing connecting them they're not like sequels, they're not in the same universe, but it basically deals with the fact that uh, the impending end of the world. Um, yeah, it just has to deal with apocalyptic events and not that it. they're tied together at all. They're, they're 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 not and and those uh, in my opinion prince of dark this is and i know everyone thinks the thing is like this amazing movie which i like it and the effects are great but um uh i don't watch that a lot and and i think that and them in the mouth of madness are uh very distant for me in terms of carpenter favorite films personally I mean, they just think well, they are like my my favorite like for instance is the thing you know and i'm not holding it against you that it's not your favorite right. you know because we all like right. the, the same thing it'd be right. awfully boring world but I, I, I don't. Know. I don't not like it. I just. I. It's. It, there's so many more that he does for me that are better. That right. ends up loading on, on a list. Yeah, but it's just like in the mouth of madness, another one that I really like, but it's so far removed from either one of these movies. Yeah. You know, still an equally you know a, a, an amazing film, but there. You know, it's, it's kind of funny when he calls it. I think he calls it his you know his Armageddon or Apocalypse trilogy. Because I think some people take that a little too literally. I've seen on some message boards and some groups and whatnot. It's just like they don't have to be tied together with a character or with no, a storyline. It's it's just similar themed overall. It's, it's the main arc, of that. and I don't even know if he, did, he right he, right. You know, he's been interviewed and and um, questioned and has done live things so many uh, just countless times in public that I, I don't think that even came up. I don't think he envisioned those when he made them all at the same time. Like, I don't know when that term came to pass, but I don't, I, I have a feeling it's a fairly recent term that he coined. Um, I don't think that he made that in the, you know, he was making the thing and then Prince Darn saying, this is going to be part of my trilogy. He didn't, I don't think he thought that back then. I just think looking back on it now in hindsight, you're like, well, you know what? I think this and this and this is pretty much, known as my whatever trilogy I, I think that's probably some fairly newly introduced uh concept by him personally yeah. i don't know be wrong i think but. that came, i think that probably came about about the time he started doing in the mouth of madness the, uh, yeah. like when he did the third one i'm like okay like, this is kind of the same thematic qualities but you know right i get it i get it but and i think i think uh and i know we're, we're not on that one at all but i think in the mouth of madness uh, I actually didn't like that one that much. That was one of the few I didn't like that much. And I think the reason, for me anyway, um, nothing really wrong with the story, although I felt that one was a little, it wasn't hard to follow, but it was a little convoluted, though. Um, I think the main thing that affected that for me is the fact that it didn't, to me, feel like much of a John Carpenter film. Um, and then I like like looking at Ghosts of Mars, it's clearly you, you got a lot of the players back again. You got classic Carpenter uh, synth music. You got certain things that just didn't, that got more um, muted or shuffled around or, or, or omitted almost from In the Mouth of Madness. And I, I was expecting to sit down and see like good old fashioned 70s or 80s Carpenter film. And right. um, I didn't get it with that one. Well, when we covered that one, uh, it's released a couple of, a couple of days ago last week, you know, and we had, uh, me and my co-host Rebecca Reinhardt, you know, it had definitely said, you know, the same thing. 
Like, oh, it, 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 yeah, you know, it's like the the soundtrack didn't, you know, was still, you know, very good, but it felt a, a little off, you know, and everything felt like it felt like it it was missing something, like it was you know, missing it, a little little like, bit of something. Yeah, if you watch any Carpenter film, you can watch it, and even if you're not overly familiar or if you don't know what movie someone's popping in and you just look other than knowing the film just because you know we're all like horror addicts and everything (laughs) right and even if you weren't though there's still a lot of elements you can be like this seems like a john carpenter movie this seems like john carpenter movie that one doesn't it just really does not um it doesn't feel like one and and again that's to me a testament to his good filmmaking is the fact that um, I'm expecting this and this and this and this and this when I see his films. And if I don't, it's already fighting an uphill battle for me for me to like it. Because I, I didn't particularly find the mouth in the mouth of madness overly interesting. Um, but I think if it had more style and more carpenter flair, I, I possibly would have enjoyed it more. But I know we're not, we're not talking about that movie. I just that's that's my you know, we were in the trilogy either we <laughs> <laughs> That's right, that's right. Now like with all the weird stuff that's in this movie, we got the weird ants that are everywhere, you know, that is being affected by this uh, swirling green liquid, the anti-god. You got the worms on the window. You got the, the the homeless people being affected. You got, you know, the reverse gravity of it. I love the, the, the scenes where it shows the canister leaking yeah. and it's dripping up towards the ceiling. As soon as I would have seen that, I'd, I'd have tipped the fuck out the door. If I was in this particular world, I'd have been like, "Nope, sorry, stage left. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't need to graduate from college that easily. I'll go flip a burger for a living." Exactly. What What is your favorite creepy moment to the film? You know, your certain favorite creepy element. The the my definitely favorite part is um uh as soon i'm so bad with characters but when she was getting birthed or whatever when the stuff is being absorbed into her skin oh kelly's uh, character yes. kelly the minute she sits up and turns her head and um the cot goes flying right there i'm like oh shit because she, first <laughs> of all she looks total psychotic like that's she looks terrifying and if, if i saw if i saw that in my living room in the evening i would just shit myself and just pass out in the living room like <laughs> that's just freak she looks beyond freaky. The makeup is really good there. Um, it's creepy. Um, and then you got the one guy walking around that's kind of like laughing and crying. And that, that, that the, the guy that stuff, tries to rip his own the visuals uh, are so disturbing. Yeah, the visuals are really, um, it's a very big uh, mind, mind fuck, this movie. It really is. And um, that, I mean, there's, a, there's, there's some good creepy moments, but um, definitely that stuff. And then I, I do like also how um, Donald Pleasance is talking and he's saying that, um, you know, the earth is changing. You can feel it or whatever he says, something like that. But I, that's why I thought the ants, it was cool and everything else, because usually and then the worms were showing up on the window. Um, usually the um, the animals or the insects, they can sense stuff before everyone else. And to me, that was a huge harbinger of like oh shit oh like a huge precursor to like oh boy there's something going on because the minute you start with the moon the minute the movie starts and you see the sun and the moon almost joined right on the sky like something's up there's just something is off and it, it just builds to that like right away it starts like that like you know something is off so when they're all going to the church and they're like why are we even here why are we whatever um and they won't tell them right away like you said they they didn't want to 
you know, let in anyone on the, the experiment, so to it's, speak. Yeah. I, I felt yeah, like they, a, they weren't letting anybody in until they got there. And even when they right, got there, right. they're like, don't tell the others what we just found, you know? Right. That's why I felt like um, when, and I didn't actually, um, I didn't actually detour from what you were talking about. Cause I'm leading right into it now, but um, aside from the scenes with Kelly and, and stuff like that, um, because they sent set up stuff so early and there was such a foreboding feeling of like uh, terror and doom. I think there were so many of these creepy moments where a moment necessarily wouldn't have been creepy if it wasn't set up early, if it wasn't alluded to earlier on, a lot of these moments may have just been throwaway moments, but now you're like, wait a minute, that was off earlier. That was mentioned. That's pretty fucked up or that's not cool. Or, that's we, when you wouldn't normally think about stuff. Um, and I think that that was um, brilliant. And I think that's what made so many moments in this film uh, memorable. Well, you know, there's even almost a kind of a throwaway type uh, scene where the uh, Jameson Parker's character, Marsh, you know, when he's uh, doing his card trick and he's sitting at home and the TV is playing this talking about the supernova and, and the significance <laughs> yep. of that, yep. like, Everything is kind of tied in. He's, he's not paying attention to that. It's just so all this stuff is sneaking up on everybody, and they're they're so oblivious to what's going on. Um, there's a lot of um, foreshadowing, a lot of foreshadowing, and um, I don't know. I just think it's brilliantly written. I think this is a very solidly written film, and I, I just I'm glad it's getting a cult status. It deserves it. And it's being treated well now with good releases and everything else, but. I, I don't understand how everyone is not just saying that this film was absolutely brilliant. There's so many people out there that are saying that. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least it's finally catching on. It's finally starting to catch on. Yeah. I, th I still think my uh, ultimate creepy scene is also, yeah, also when Kelly turns to the, you know, when Dennis Dunn is in that closet and she turns to him yep. and just kind of laughs and, and the cop goes flying. That's a big scene. But when the. Oh, what's the character's name? I forgot the Wyndham character that got stabbed to death by the bag lady. When the generator and all the, the power goes off through all their equipment, and then he's standing outside, already dead. He's just in a reanimated corpse. But when he has that line where he's like, I got a message for you, and you're not going to like it. Pray yeah. for death. It's just yeah. like, oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a highly creepy scene. Right, and then right after that, what happened? You know, I'm like, I try not to spoil things best I can, but yeah, right after he says that, and everyone reacts at the window. Then to me, I you almost feel like, like oh shit, <laughs> that's that's the moment right there that officially, like everyone suspected stuff or everyone's starting to feel things. But that's the moment right there where it's like, there's no doubt what's going on now. You've crossed that line, and right, that's right, the moment where the, the the film shifts into next gear. Like right at that moment is the defining time that that switches over to the to the next act. Well, you know, it's right before that scene when uh, everybody starts having that dream, that reoccurring right. dream, which is basically as they determine through quantum physics and mechanics and all this microbiology and everything else this, these physicists but, are, are talking but, about that I don't get. But it's weird because they're 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 concerned and they're a little creeped out by that. But right after that thing happens, they're like, uh oh, that's it. You know, and, and to me, right. again, that's that slow build we were talking about. It's all something's off. It's is it scary? Actually, that is scary as, as shit, to be honest. That that scene, that whole visual is very disturbing. The sound is disturbing. It was filmed in a way to 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 
make it just off a little bit. Well, and, and it was also also shot on VHS. It was shot well, on video, video, which I thought was a nice touch. And that might be like the is that the first time in a studio film that they shot anything on a on video? I mean, I it might be. I don't think so. I don't think so. But um, to that if to that effect, yeah. I mean, I think that was just the fact that um, it just it was off. The whole the whole that whole scene was off, and there's really not much going on there. It's just very disturbing and that that still is up to um uh debate of of, an analysis as to what exactly is going on in that scene um with scholars and film uh aficionados and film addicts and film fans people still discuss that particular segment um but that's a really disturbing ass scene it really is yeah if i was having that dream it maybe wouldn't disturb me so much, but if you if six other people told me they were having the same dream, you best yeah. believe that would cause That'll, be a cause for some concern. Street going on, yeah, exactly. That's when I would just be like, "Nope, uh, uh, check, please." <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but you know, I, I love the fact that the 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 homeless army, you know, the homeless anti god army, as they call call it in the script, you know, they don't really they take out those two the two people that try to leave. And right. then they barricade everybody else in. And for the rest of the movie, they're just standing there. They right. don't do anything until, well, I mean, at one point when uh, the Brian Marsh character, you know, jumps out the window and tries to make a, you know, he's like, I'm going to go see Sorry. if I can make a run for it. Yeah. That does not work out well for him. Right. Yeah. That, that's a very short lived kind of rescue mission kind of thing. But uh, yeah. Yeah. That, I just, it's, it's just, it's a whole lot of creep factor. It's not a whole lot of shock and awe. Well, it, it, it's real creep factor too, because they establish all that earlier on when they're uncovering it all and they're talking about, you know, um, the army there burying the canister and everything else. So right away, you're making a connection. Like, oh wait, this is the this is the army. Now, are these real homeless people that are doing the things, or are they literally like a sleeper cell, like in that movie Telephone with Charles Bronson, just being oh, waiting yeah. to be at- you know, it's like you don't know if there actually are homeless people, if they actually are here already just waiting to be um, preyed upon by, you know, the evil forces to have them. Just kind of waiting, to, waiting to, yeah, know, like you a, don't like know. You said, a and sleep I, or something. I, I, right. And I think that's kind of cool is that they really don't delineate that stuff. You really because they certainly could be homeless people, but they also could just be going back to their waiting to be called again. And you don't know. And the way that the whole. <clears throat> excuse me the way that the whole movie ends and everything you still don't know if they actually um thwarted evil or if it's just too late and it's still coming regardless anyway and maybe those things are lying in wait for whatever um it's a very very dark movie and it leaves up so many leaves so many things opened i wouldn't say unanswered but it leaves it up to interpretation and that's different to me than saying unanswered unanswered means badly written or poorly or lazily written for certain things when things are open to interpretation i think there's a big difference because there actually are numerous meanings to try to um get from from what actually happened and i think there's a difference saying well that just didn't end or that didn't answer things because to me that's a sign of some weaker writing for for whatever reason and this was not this really left things open um and open to what you thought yeah, I think it definitely is things, you know, not unanswered, but it leaves it open to interpretation. As right, you said. Right. And, uh, and it's got a, uh, you know, the cast really drives this. 
each person is cast really well. It they know their parts really well, even for the people that I can't remember and the, the characters that I, you know, the names that I can't remember because you know, hell, I just watched it, but you know, I'm older, my memory is shot. But you know, it's like people like, uh, yeah, <laughs> I can't remember everybody, but like uh, everybody plays their roles really well. And like, uh, my one of my favorite characters is Dr. Leahy, yeah. uh, Peter Jason, you know, who would go on to work with. Carpenter, God, six, seven, eight films right. probably, and this was his first, uh, you know, Carpenter film, and right. he's just a, a really colorful character. You know, for it's a character that could have been in anybody else's hands, right. a throwaway. Right. Well, that's what I said. I think, and and the reason you're saying that is because there really wasn't much, uh, much opportunity to develop a lot of characters, and again, that's not the it's not anything bad that they chose not to do that. They chose to focus on, um, I think the look of certain people, the delivery of certain people mixed mm-hmm. in with this storyline to drive it forward. And yeah, the characters were good. Like I said, they weren't overly, um, developed, but they were good. They were very good for the film. And they, they you knew just enough about everybody. You knew just enough about, um, uh, about the people you needed to, because one of the things with the film that I liked is remember they, they all came from the same university and then they were joined by other people. So they didn't know any of these yeah. guys. And yeah, half the people didn't know. Like at, at one point, Patty was asking me, she's like, does you know, when everybody kept uh, talking about, Oh, uh, I think it's the, the Susan character, right. you know, they're like, who's Susan? They're like, don't want the glasses. Like they didn't know that. Yeah, because nobody really knew who she was. They were all from different parts. I I think that made a more effective, um, creepy and alienated feeling and atmosphere for the film because of the fact that they did know each other. You know, not only were you in a, you were in a, a, a big location with threats from something going on, you were in a place with people that you didn't trust anyway because you didn't know them. So you had that double thing going on. Was there something else going that was more su- of a supernatural nature, an unseen nature? And are you feeling what you're feeling because of something legitimate like that or because of paranoia just because you simply don't know a person? Like if you felt threatened by something, if I had a stranger in my house and something was trying also, you know, um, preternaturally trying to get through or something, would I be worried about a ghost doing something or would I be feel feeling threatened because the person is in my house. I don't know if he's possessed by something that I can't see or if that's the way he is. Cause I don't know him anyway. So what Carpenter did by not developing a lot of these characters and introducing a lot of these characters or really having them gel is he created that, that feeling of, of paranoia and doom. And I think that that worked brilliantly. And I don't think people realize that stuff. You know, you had that dual thing going on where these people where they come from, you don't know, and what's what else is out there. So these people that we did know were dealing with all these external things that were right, basically sitting at the table with them, and then the next computer next to them, and everything else. Um, and I think it, it really worked. I just think it was it was good. Yeah, for part of his, uh, you know, so-called uh, apocalypse trilogy, it's yeah. the opposite of the thing. You know, right. with the thing, it was a group of guys that all knew each other well because they were living with each other for months on end, if not years, you know, yeah. so they knew each other well. So it was a total, totally different kind of paranoia. Right. Yeah, it was because right away you're like, 
um, that's not so-and-so, that's not so-and-so. You just knew that, you know, that was kind of cool. Um, even, even to bring this up to you too, but like with the thing, with, um, with the thing, with, uh, Christine, um, you know, that was just more on the line of the thing too, is because when the car started really getting, uh, into Arnie, uh, they were saying that's not Arnie. Like they were able to, they knew him enough to say that's not Arnie. Um, and then yeah, they, that's not the Arnie that we know. Right. And they, in par- and, uh, in Prince of Darkness, they didn't know them anyway, so they had nothing, they had no baseline to go from, so they're just really like, how possessed is this guy? How messed up is this guy? What's going on? Like, you know, they walking down the hallway and they see somebody that they don't know anyway, then the guy spits at them and they drop out of the way so they don't get that shit blown into their face. <clears throat> um, there's just a lot of palpable suspense and terror going on there. It's really good. Well, it's like when... Uh... What's the character's name? Calder, Jesse, the, that Jesse Ferguson plays when he starts kind of crying and laughing yeah, and that weird yeah. giggle he does, and he's singing "Amazing Grace" and he tries to take himself out by like cutting his own throat. Yeah. You know, like they're shocked. I mean, because they, like they don't know this guy. They don't know if something's wrong with him at first. They don't because again, nobody knows each other. Right. And like the and, scene and nobody, with him, but nobody wants to because they don't know why they're there. They don't trust what necessarily uh, what their their instructors telling them. They don't know these other people. They don't know what other outside force is going on. There's so much transpiring in this film. There's so many things, so many layers to this, and then adding in all that mumbo jumbo stuff to make it possibly seem more intense and important than it really is. Um, right. Just, it's it's. I mean, God, I wish people really would appreciate this film more. It's just an insane movie. Oh, it's great. I mean, look, one of the most insane moments is, is again, with the Calder character. When he goes into the room where Donald Pleasance had been hiding out. Mm-hmm. And he's just staring at that mirror. Mm-hmm. And you, can, you, you know what he's doing without him having to tell you or with anybody t- trying to tell you what he's doing. He's just waiting impatiently for, you know, the quote-unquote one to come so that right. they can reach and bring forth, you know, the, the, the son of Satan out of this mirror when he's just sitting there with that in like impossible amount of patience, just waiting, just watching and waiting until Kelly's character shows up. Mm-hmm. And the most creepy part, the most creepy part is again with the Kelly character when she just, you know, does that father kind of <laughs> shit is just, it, <clears throat> gives me goose pimples every time. And I've yep. seen this movie more times than I can count. About it, same here. But, uh, you know, I mean, and towards the end, I mean, when everybody's kind of dropping like flies, poor Walter's in the closet. You know, when he's... <laughs> when he starts off, you know, poor Dennis Dunn, you know, is just, you know, cracking wise the entire time until they make a move for him and the and Kelly character starts hitting himself and starts hammering through that wall. That would totally be me. Yeah, that would be me. I, I I would be <laughs> shitting myself at the time. I, I would be shitting myself completely every step of the way. Exactly. But, you know, uh, when everything starts culminating in the end, you know, and I was calling Priest Loomis, you know, uh, <laughs> chops off Kelly's arm when she starts reaching through the mirror, which is a great... Right yeah, it grows right back. Then yeah. he takes and chops off her head. She just reaches down, picks her head up. Oh, like 
it, it's just like a, a, the note I actually had here. Priest chops off her arm, then chops off her head. Priest, you is fucked. Yeah. <laughs> That's, mm. The only disappointing part, the really the only disappointing part, and I understand why they did it. Again, at the same time, it's a slight disappointment, but at the same time, I wouldn't change it, is that you, we only see the hand of the quote-unquote anti-god when she reaches forth and starts bringing... You know, it's a great scene where you see, like, on the other side of the mirror, you see all that swirling liquid in the darkness and his hand, you know, with the, the claws and the red skin and everything. I, I wanted to see, like, uh, Alice Cooper had even said this in a uh, interview. He's like, that's one thing he wanted to see. He wanted to see the whole the whole enchilada. Like, you know what I mean? Like, but I get it. If they would have showed it, that, the, the I, whole I think- thing... It would yeah, it would have ruined it, I, you yeah, know. I think that less is more with this one because I, I think it would, it could have very easily have um, the whole movie, if it was over the top, if it was, and I'm not bashing him at all, but if it was directed by like Rennie Harlan or somebody, and it was like way over the top and crazy and bombastic, um, it could have been easily very laughable and goofy, and um, like the whole movie, at least in certain parts, and. Carpenter wisely played it very close to his um to his chest with stuff and didn't really give away that much, um and he let your mind run away with stuff and that's why again when there's so many questions that are open to interpretation at the end, you know uh, he that's what he was going for it clearly was he it's it wasn't underdeveloped it wasn't underwritten it wasn't poorly written he knew what he was doing he left this open to you he does he wants you to think whether or not um. The, the impending end of the world is still happening because of that whole last segment uh, scene. Um, every, I mean, just everything. And I think that they handled it perfectly. You don't need to see the thing. You didn't need to whatever. You can only imagine if if that's how fucked up she looked and that's how nasty and creepy she was, you can only imagine. And when she's reaching out for the hand and the hand reaches back out for her and it's like four times the size of her hand, you can, right, only, right. Imagine, you can only imagine what's going to come to that thing. And I, I think it was perfect. I was going to say my like my wife too. Every time, especially with seventies or eighties movies, some of them she likes, like the Sentinel and stuff like that. She likes, um, but a lot of times when their effects are over the top, or when there's just too many effects, and that's not even because of the the lack of CGI or anything. Because CGI is garbage. But um, she's oh, always agreed. like, "Well, that's goofy," or it turns something like that, and that's goofy, and that's goofy. This didn't get goofy. It didn't get silly. It didn't get playful. It didn't get. Uh, you never broke the reality of thinking, oh, that's an effect. Oh, that's whatever. You know, even the effects were so, uh, with the with the performances being understated in the film, the effects were understated as well, the, and purposely. Uh, he certainly had the money to do it. He wasn't like skimping or doing whatever, but he wisely chose to invest that, I think, in atmosphere and um, and writing and, and just got a great location, got good performances out of, actors that were basically there just to move the plot along because um you know they didn't i don't think they really did dumb things in this movie usually a lot of characters do stupid things they didn't really do that but they were there long enough to explain certain things that needed to move the story along and i think i mean i don't know i don't this was like expertly executed i don't know how else anyone would have done this better i just don't 
I don't think anybody would have done it better. Yeah. You know, I always, you know, people always say, well, if so-and-so had done this movie, I'm like, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about if so-and-so had done this movie because right. it's in less capable hands, you know? Well, yeah, it's like Carpenter. It's like, <laughs> who else would possibly top him? Right, well, right. Like the only other person that I could see that could have directed this uh, and probably handled the material in a similar fashion would have been like Romero. But still, yeah, like my yeah, man even, Carpenter is, yeah. is, is, you know. But like, well, you know, you mentioned the ending. Maybe, Let's get Craven. Maybe Wes Craven would have maybe handled that well. That would have been more up his line than Romero, I think. But it's a John probably, Carpenter. Probably film. it's a John Carpenter film for sure. But uh, let's get into the ending. You know, you mentioned you touched base on that a little bit. You know, I mean, with the well, the kind of the not, I want to say tacked on ending, but that kind of uh, that leaves you hanging ending. You know, because at the end. Catherine sacrifices herself right. and, and tackles Kelly back into the the mirror with in enough time for you know priest Loomis to throw the axe, shatter it, leaving them all, you know, Kelly, the anti-god, and unfortunately poor Catherine to on the other side of the underworld. And that's pretty much where it ends, you know, and everybody that had been possessed, you know, at this point is uh now deceased you know they're all dead they're no longer possessed by this evil and then we get another dream sequence and you know we'll explain this dream sequence for anybody that you know that's listening at home that maybe just you know does needs a refresher but if they're here listening to john carpenter appreciation month i'm sure they've seen this movie already but you know it's just the video footage of the front of the church but, you know, you kind of see that cloaked dark figure getting ready to come out. And, you know, this is from the year 1999, and, you know, like we're transmitting to you through frequencies, blah, blah, blah. But like when it changes to the very final dream sequence, you finally see that it's not this cloaked figure that it looked like before of a huge man. It's Catherine coming through. And oh. then it's poor Brian waking up from his dream. He goes to the mirror you know, starts to reach for, and just as his fingers are about to touch, of course, it cuts. Right. Now, I'm curious what you think, because uh, I've had this discussion with other people. I've discussed it with my wife and some of my other friends. If that ending had went <coughs> five more seconds or ten more seconds or, or a whole other sequence, you know, minutes longer, do you think his hand would have went through the mirror, or do you think he would have just touched mirrored glass and that had been the end of it? I think they. Um, I, I think it would have uh, probably just touched glass and not went through. But I think um, just the fact that, again, he was smart enough to leave that open to people, so he just cut it right there. I don't. I don't think he was going to open that. Um, that whole other. I don't think it was that kind of a film to to have a cheap little, tacked on, sequel type of deal. You know, is there going to be one type of thing? Um, I think there was enough in there. I think that the fact that. He um he had that dream with her and it seemed very real and again at that point I don't know if he was necessarily dreaming if it really was a premonition like at first you think that they're all dreams when they're all having them because they were explained that way they were explained that you know you're all gonna have the same thing but even then they were like but is it a dream is it a premonition they weren't sure even you know the priests were like or the 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 the, the instructor professor was like I've had them and I. They, none of them could really pinpoint what it was. They just knew they were all having them. Um, 
So, you know, you think whatever, and they're all having the same dream. The fact that he had that at the end, that to me was really like a harbinger of, oh shit, whatever you think you did, you didn't do. Because um, he may have been dreaming about her, but she was alive. Um, and she was showing up in the dream. Now, is that in his mind? Is that whatever? I think that she was alive in a dream and she was really warning him, like, it's not over. I'm still here. So is the evil. Right. And then right. it's just smart enough for him to question that because he was truly like not sure of what it was. So he went up to the mirror, went to touch it. And then Carpenter wisely stopped it there. So that's oh, what yeah. I, perfect I, way I, to I think, end it. I think he would have touched the glass anyway. And he, I think what he probably would have done and I can't, I can't speak for it, but I have a feeling he would have put his hand on the solid glass realized it was solid maybe tapped it once or twice with his finger and then it could have just faded out and went to the credits but the fact that he just left it open like i'm not going to give this to you i'm not going to i'm going to make you guys work for this one is just yes. a test to him being a great filmmaker well and we've had this conversation before uh, you and i have and i've had this with a few others if there's one thing carpenter knows how to do at least for the most part he knows how to end a film he right. knows right on that right note right where to end it and you know I that think... it's really true that like if you look at Halloween, not a second sooner or not a second longer to end that. It ended absolutely spot on. Spot on. If it was a half a second longer, it may have had a it may have taken a different feel to the ending. I, I can't explain it. I just think it, it ended absolutely where it needed to end. Um and that's what I think oh, this one did. Absolutely. He was waiting and waiting. I don't even know if he edited this movie, but if he didn't, he was editing that scene. He was definitely in there when they were editing that and saying, okay, 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 frame, 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 stop it right there. You know right. that they had Carpenter written on it. Nobody, uh, the editors, as good as the editors are, they do not have Carpenter's um, uh, eye for stuff. They don't. Even if they worked with him for years, I have no doubt that when it came to that, because I think there was another editor, if I looked at the credits earlier, I think there was obviously someone else edited the film, but I have no doubt that that scene in particular, Carpenter was sitting right there, cigarette in hand, brushed right up against the monitor, looking and saying, okay, okay, go, 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 okay, stop right there. Guar <laughs> right. Guarantee he was doing it. I would bet money on that. And I'm yeah. broke as hell. I would bet money I don't <laughs> have on that. <laughs> exactly. Because exactly. That, that has all the hallmarks of, of being too perfect to be executed by anybody else, even by the most skilled editor. Right, right. Well, that being said, we're that's at the end of our film and we have uh, i think exhausted every resource we could probably have on on this film you want to let's go ahead and go into our final thoughts and review uh you you've been a guest on the show a few times so you know the drill uh guests go first and give us uh, your final thoughts and a rating on a scale from one to ten sir i think it's uh carpenter's best film i think it's um his best film by far um, it's pure Carpenter and it's pure, it's a pure horror film that respects its audience enough to, to just give enough, but, um, to leave enough quite a bit up to interpretation. Um, and I would give it probably a nine and a half out of 10. I'd have to agree with you. I'm, I'm coming in slightly lower, just slightly lower. I'm coming in at an even nine, nine, <clears throat> excuse me. Sorry. I'm coming in at an even nine. Uh, I feel like it's a very intelligent film. It's yeah. it's it's a lot like you know like we had, we had said or I had said earlier. It's part 
assault on precinct 13 part of the thing but it's everything that the thing wasn't and i love the thing you know it doesn't make me love this movie any less um the thing i i give it a, an even 10 out of 10 but you know this movie is intelligent it doesn't insult you with uh, any kind of stupidity there might be a joke or two that like you, you like you had said earlier you know that i might cut you know that because dennis dunn was kind of our uh, how do you want to say that, our com- comic relief reason, that's the only reason i didn't give it a 10 the only reason yeah, that's about really it. That's you know really it, and, and you know, it's got ton of uh, a ton of style. It has style and and it has substance. I think a lot of in other filmmakers' hands, this movie would have suffered from an improper balance. You know, some people go you know too much style, too much substance, not one of not enough of one or the other. But I feel like this movie is perfectly balanced. You know, it gives you enough. Gives you tastes of everything without having to be vulgar for vulgarity's sake, you know. And I love it. It's it's a great film. It's probably one of the best out of the the latter '80s of you know portion of uh, John Carpenter's career. And you know, just an overall great film. You know, I do remember seeing this at, at, again. I, I always go back to this. I saw this at the drive-in at the good old Y and W in Maryville, Indiana, back way back in the day before it got bulldozed in. A lot of good memories at that movie theater. But yeah, this was a perfect drive-in theater. It's a highly intelligent, cerebral uh, film. And yeah, love every moment of it. Well, that being said, I don't want to call the an, an end to the evening because I love doing these so much, but we should probably uh, say farewell for the night. But um, you want to tell people where they can find you on the interwebs? And of course, what do you got going on? I know we, we got Cruel Summer uh, coming up shooting here in just a couple of days. Yeah, whenever this uh, airs, this either we just filmed Cruel Summer, or we're just about to film Cruel Summer because we're we're filming it on uh, from the 18th of February to the 24th of February in North Florida. Uh, can't wait for that; it's gonna be really exciting. Uh, high body count, typical 80s slasher film. A um, lot of blood, a lot of fun, um, and I'm very proud of this one. We'll see how it comes out. Um, but yeah, hit me up on Facebook. It's Facebook. It's it's Scott Ghi. You can find me there. You can find me on Twitter, Scott Ghi. You can message me anytime um, if you have any questions, uh, comments, friend me, like me, whatever. I, I don't want just people on there just to have numbers. I actually do like to interact with my uh, friends on Facebook and uh, Twitter. So please look me up there. I don't have Instagram or anything else like that because I uh, it's, it's busy enough working with these two sites. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's exactly why. I have uh, Patty Manning my uh, Instagram because it's it's hard enough to to do the podcast with Podbean and everything and Manning the Facebook pages. It's like that's enough for enough for me. I don't yeah, need to know I got, more I about got, social media. <laughs> yeah, I got the Instagram, but um, I never ever 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 posted anything. So I have an Instagram account, but uh, I still have followers, but I've never posted a thing. So go figure. <laughs> so don't follow me there. There's nothing going on there. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Well, that being said, I want to thank you, Scott. I know you are super busy, you know, directing, writing, producing, getting everything together, scheduling, you know, a feature film is no easy task being a one-man army. So I highly appreciate yep. it's a, it's a one and a half taking army. the time this yeah, close Jim, to Jim zero hour. On, yeah, Jim's just not going to be on the set, but it's a one and a half army. He's, he's behind the <laughs> shore, so he's yep. there. We're going to miss him. We're going to miss him this week. <laughs> But that being said, I, I I still want to thank you for taking you know an hour or two out of your out of your time this close to you know 
zero hour and you know this it's always great. it's yeah, always fun doing great. these with you talk talk about a great film with a great guy so I had a lot of fun <laughs> right on right on well folks once again you have been listening to cinema degenerations john carpenter appreciation month and we have been will sorry we have been dissecting and reviewing prince of darkness from 1987 Thanks again for listening and stay scared.